0: What's up, everyone? This is episode number 53 of the Wax Museum Podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on my social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. And this is really the start of year number two for me. So I'm pretty excited. Uh, Year one was a blast. You know, it's time to do it again. And if you're following me on social media already, you might have seen that I shared some pretty big news this week. Some of you have been asking me about it, so I want to take a moment to explain that further. I have accepted an invitation to join a new media group called Bench Clear Media. And what this essentially is, is a group of hobby podcasts that are now under the same umbrella and the same branding and I want you to remember that at the same time all of these shows are still separate entities you know we don't have to agree on everything we don't all have to have the same takes we don't have to have one collective stance about the hobby and how to collect Um, the shows are not intended to all be the same and that would be boring anyway however all of the shows will operate under one mission statement and that is that we want to provide the number one network of thought-provoking unbiased, and insightful content, hobby content, in the sports card industry. Now, that's really in line with some of my goals from before I joined. You know, I love this hobby. It's been very good for me, and I want to give back. This podcast grew out of that desire and grew out of the the desire to help inform and educate the hobby and facilitate discussion along the way. Now, at times, that has meant being critical when I felt that was needed, and And maybe as a byproduct, I might have even entertained you a little along the way. So when we say Bench Clear Media is setting out to provide thought-provoking, unbiased, and insightful hobby content, I feel like that's in line with what I've already been doing. Um, However, I think this move could also pay off for you guys, the listeners, in the long run, and for several reasons. Number one, it will help the show get more exposure. That way, if I want to try and get a guest that maybe I haven't been able to get in the past, I feel like it gives me a better shot. Um, You know, it helps to legitimize the show a little bit and it broadens my network. And then secondly, some of you might remember that I asked for donations not too long ago. You guys were incredibly gracious with your support. So first off, thank you. And then also this move will help me to get some advertisers that can help on that front as well. So. Don't be surprised to see those roll out in about a month or so. Um, now, I was very clear when this whole thing was pitched to me that I don't want any conflicts of interest and I'm not going to be bought. I'm not going to read promos for companies or websites that I feel the need to be critical of. Uh, it's not like all of a sudden you're going to see me reading StockX ads on here or something like that. Um, additionally, I made it clear that I wanted control over my stuff. I wanted ownership of my episodes, I wanted to keep the graphics I had, and so on and so on. Anyway, I won't bore you with the logistics, but I have a very good working relationship with the people involved. They have pretty much told me, you know, just be you, and I feel very good about it. So anyway, this is something that's entirely new for me, but I have a feeling that it's going to start moving very fast. It's all very exciting for me, so make sure that you give Bench Clear Media a follow on Instagram, which is at Bench underscore clear underscore media, and then Twitter, which is at BenchClearMedia. It's all one word. With all of that being said, I anticipate having at least a few more listeners rerouted my way this week because of that network. And if you combine that with the fact that I'm now entering year number two, I think today is a great time and a great opportunity to reintroduce myself and take somewhat of a comprehensive stroll through NBA card history, or at least part of it. So, real quick, a little bit about myself. As I mentioned in the intro of the show, my name is Kyle. I originally grew up in Indiana, and I am still a diehard Pacers fan and Pacers collector, which somebody told me, you're the only one that I've ever come across. There are more out there. There there are plenty of good Pacers collectors. My collecting history, though, starts around 1995, Since then, I've taken two, I think, around two short stints off from basketball in between. And I I can narrow that down. It was around, I would say, between 2000 and 2003. I eventually came back for all the LeBron hype. I started reading message boards around that time. And then I took another break around 2007, all the way to 2009 or 2010. That's when I went to college and I dabbled in baseball cards, which that was a mistake. Um... I came back largely as a result that time of of the 2009 rookie class. And then also I was getting cards signed at NBA games. And despite collecting in the 90s, you know, I mentioned I started around 95. I really love stuff from the 2003 to 2006 range. I guess I'm just really nostalgic about those Pacers teams. Um, I also own a lot of Panini stuff from the present. I collect mainly patches, but I've branched out over time as well. So one of my goals this year is to show more of my collection in videos on social media. I like that format. I like being able to talk a little bit about the cards. All right, so I say all that because I think it's important for you to know the lens that I'm viewing NBA card history through. A lot of it I have experienced firsthand. Uh, For other parts, maybe I was um, around the same time and still saw some of the chatter on message boards. Um, I have had to do some catching up. You know, obviously I, I wasn't around in 1957, uh, or 1961, you know, a lot of these older sets and that's involved quite a bit of reading and asking questions. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I try to go to great lengths to read about all the topics I cover. And I try to ask questions when I feel there might be any gaps in whatever I want to touch on too. And, and I feel like that's, um, just uh, one way that I can respect you guys. I don't want to disrespect you and your time by just feeding you a bunch of misinformation. Um, Before I jump into my overview of NBA card history, I do want to note that there will be some overlap from previous episodes here. I think that should be expected when I've been talking about basketball cards for 52 weeks straight. I gave a very brief run through a basketball card history uh, up to the Panini era in episode one. I definitely skimmed over some parts and I know there have been quite a few new listeners since then. Um, There are some Topics that I could definitely go a lot deeper into today like grading or college sets, but my goal is to stick to just NBA cards. And I get a lot of questions about some of the sets I plan to cover today, so hopefully this will help people to get a little more acclimated to the history of the basketball side of the hobby. I'd planned on covering this in one episode, but there's just too much stuff. So part one is going to be everything leading up to 2003. And part two will be everything from 2003 on. So I guess that would be before LeBron and uh, LeBron and after. So you can expect the second part next week. All right, so let's jump in. Um, Technically, the first basketball cards were printed all the way back in the early 1900s. There was a Murad cigarette multi-sport set that had a Williams College card in 1910. Um, I know I said I'm not going to talk a lot about the non-pro stuff, but I will give you just some of the basics here in the early days. There was a Canadian set called Willards that featured a female team, the Edmonton grads in 1924, and then 1933 Sport Kings featured the first four cards with professional basketball players. But none of these were actually standalone pro basketball sets. And that wouldn't come until 15 years later in the form of the 1948 Bowman set. Some of you listening today, you might be baseball people. You might be very familiar with that brand or that name, Bowman. Um, At this point, it was separate from Topps because Topps purchased them in 1956. But Bowman had produced some baseball cards around this time, and they decided to give basketball cards a try as well with a 72-card set. Well, of course, every player in the set is considered a rookie, and this set was originally distributed in two different groups, with the second half of the set being more scarce, The more iconic card from the set is George Mikan's rookie, and it's from the second half, so those can be fairly difficult to track down. And while this is um, considered to be an iconic set by today's standard, the problem was the sport itself just wasn't very popular. So that was 1948. We didn't have another attempt at a standalone pro basketball set until Tops threw their hat into the ring in 1957. And the sport itself had changed quite a bit since Bowman set in 1948. In the mid-50s, the NBA introduced the shot clock, which sped things up quite a bit. Topps executives thought it was worth a try, and still, at the time, it didn't pan out. And in retrospect, it's gained quite the following, as it should have, because the set features 20 Hall of Fame rookies, which I don't think we'll ever see again unless there's a major hobby drought of sorts in the future. And headlining that set is or headlining that group is Bill Russell. Those of you that listened to my last listener forum episode might remember that one of my goals was to pick up some key rookies from NBA history. Well, similar to Mikein, I'm already priced out of the Russell rookie. These are just really hard to come by and they're really sought after. And on top of that, we've seen that some of the vintage baseball trimmers have targeted targeted those as well because of their status and their desirability. So like I said, this set wasn't received well at the time, it's not surprising that Tops bowed out for a while, and we didn't see another dedicated set from a major manufacturer until Fleer then gave it a go in 1961. And this set has a, him- a similar story. It wasn't very popular, Fleer abandoned ship, and the set has gained quite a bit of momentum over time because it's loaded. I am a big fan of this set, and speaking of big, the premier card in this set is the Wilt Chamberlain rookie. Um, but there are several other stars that have rookies in this set, including Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, and Elgin Baylor. At this point, we didn't get any more mainstream cards until Topps reemerged in 1969. So that was a, a pretty big break. And those of you that have listened to episode 26, you might remember that they produced a series in-house the year before to sort of test the waters. Adam joined me for that episode. He also owns the Wilt Chamberlain from that set, so I'm a little jealous. If you haven't listened to that one yet, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, But this 1969 set sort of broke the ice to get cards back in the mainstream, and Tops produced basketball cards every year through the 1981 and 1982 season. I'm not going to break down every one of these sets. That would take forever, and it's really not worth doing for a lot of them. Um, The only reason I've done that with the last couple of sets is because they were just so iconic. Um, 1969 and 1970 cards both contained taller cards that deviated from the standard size. The key rookies in 69 were Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. At that time, he was known as Lew Alcindor. Um, You had John Havlicek, Bill Bradley, Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, and that's just a few. There's more. 1970 was a more colorful set and featured another pretty popular card, which was the Pete Maravich Rookie. Um, Continuing on, the the 71 set aesthetically is one of my favorite vintage sets because it's just so bright. And I also like it was the first set to feature ABA cards, which was a rival league of the NBA at the time. It's crazy to think that a manufacturer would include rival leagues in the same set, Uh, but that's the 70s for you. I mean, now the NBA is not in a position to where they would have to do that. Uh, They wouldn't allow that today. But in the 70s, you know, that was standard. Uh, During this time frame, you might also notice that some of the cards featured players with their jerseys on backwards. There's just a lot of weird stuff going on. A lot of people ask me about this. For the NBA, at least, Tops had a deal with the Players Association, but not the teams themselves. So they didn't have the rights to show logos or team names for some franchises. And if the jersey sported a city name instead, they were usually okay to show it. This issue was resolved by 1972, but we still see some players with backwards jerseys in the set. Um, The one that sticks out in my mind is the Wilt Chamberlain Lakers card. His jersey's on backwards From what I've read, there were some regional photographers that either didn't get the memo or in other cases, older photos might have still been used. All right, moving through the 70s, not a lot of excitement on the card front. Um, I think the 73 and 75 sets were especially boring. I think they're ugly. That's just my opinion. Um, We didn't get a lot of big rookies in that time frame. And for some reason, then Tops moved back to a tall card for one year in 1976, And these were even larger um, than the versions they had used in 69 and 70. And there wasn't much going for this set either, save for a David Thompson rookie. Big changes, though, were in store for the 1980 set, which featured 264 cards. um, But they all had three perforated mini cards on each card. Um, For those of you newer collectors, or maybe if you started in the 90s, think something like the 1996 collector's choice cards that had three perforated mini panels. It was a very similar look to those. And um, still, even though it it didn't quite catch on, this set produced a monster card because they paired the Magic and Bird rookie panels with Julius Irving. And in, in terms of how monumental this is, I feel like this card is still very affordable. I haven't picked one up yet. I've been meaning to. Otherwise, though, I'm not a huge fan of the set, but that card alone makes it a pretty big deal. And that was the last real big tops card um, before they took a hiatus at the end of the 1981-82 season. Um, Sorry, I don't consider the Kevin McHale rookie to be as huge as some of the uh, so-called experts out there. Um, And once again... The sport just wasn't popular enough for a major manufacturer to pour resources into a set. Even with Bird and Magic coming onto the scene, um, the NBA was still turning that around. The NBA was still marketing around its stars. That really started with Bird and Magic and then continued later on with Jordan. Um, I've talked about that some before. David Stern had a a lot to do with that. Um, So we had a cardless year. In 1982 and 83 which is hard to imagine and then the star company came onto the scene to help fill the void between the previous top set and then the famous fleer set that we'll talk about later in 1986. i have talked about the star company quite a bit on my jordan rookie card episode which was episode 29. make sure to check that one out Basically, these were fully licensed cards. So a lot of people, you know, have, have made the mistake of saying, "Oh, that's unlicensed stuff, or those cards don't count." No, they were licensed cards. You could buy them at hobby shops in team sets or subsets. They were all bagged up, and and they were called uh, what was called poly bags. Or you could order these sets by the mail. In some locations, you could purchase them at NBA games. And the common figure that I've seen thrown around a lot is that there are probably around three to 4,000 copies of each set that were produced per team in a given year. And realistically, there just wasn't the demand or the need to print more. Um, I would say then, you know, the most famous star card was Michael Jordan's first card in the 84-85 set. Some people even consider that to be as true rookie. You have to make your own call. But that then helps us segue into the 1986-87 Fleer set in that card, which is generally regarded as Jordan's true rookie card. So 1986-87 Fleer, that's one I'm sure all of you can picture it. Just, you know, even if you've never seen another card, you've likely seen the Jordan rookie card. This was a 132 card set um, that featured 11 stickers. The stickers were one per pack. Some of you might not know that boxes in 1986 were not sealed. There was no such thing then as a factory sealed basketball box. If you see one of those for auction now that's sealed, there are um, there is a company out there that basically authenticates and seals these boxes. You just have to be careful because um, there are boxes that are kind of Frankenstein together with packs. So you please do your research. Uh, Read very carefully when you're you're buying that. Uh, Make sure your reading extends beyond the auction listing or the auction description. Um, For the people that don't accept star cards as mainstream rookies, 1986 Fleer was huge. We hadn't seen actual pack inserted rookies since the early 80s, so this set gave us rookies for uh, Barkley, Malone, Drexler, Dominique Wilkins, Isaiah, Hakeem, Joe Dumars, James Worthy, Chris Mullen, and then, of course, Michael Jordan. And you could usually find three to four Jordan rookies in every box. Uh, that is, if you were buying boxes then. And um, this was new and exciting for some people. It was good for basketball fans, but it wasn't. this set wasn't really popular like baseball was at the time. Um, Keep in mind, Jordan was hurt the previous season. There were a number of factors that played into this um, lack of popularity. And I've told this story before, but there was a poster on the Collectors Universe forum that he relayed a conversation he had with a high-level FLIR executive in the late 90s. Um, And that executive claimed, because of the product's disappointing reception on the market, they cut production in half for 1987 and 88. However, though, even though they cut it in half, they kept producing, which was big. And not long after, we found ourselves in a period of overproduction. So at some point, they did ramp up the numbers again. And we're about to talk about that here. Um, Part of the reason was that basketball was heating up. Jordan was heating up. And um, according to a, a message board poster that collected during that time, Um, He remembers it as follows. He said, in 1988, the 86 Fleer set was worthless. By 1989, basketball cards were hot and Jordans went from nothing to $50. Uh, Changes were also made to distribution. You saw more rack packs at retail stores. Really, you saw cards for sale at all kinds of places. And hoops then entered the equation. I know I rag on them now, but they are a big deal in the hobby. Um, I do respect their place in the hobby, and we now had two major manufacturers, and uh, it was around this time that I feel like, you know, even though they had taken the lead and they had gotten the license back, um, Fleer really goofed up by not including David Robinson in its 1989 set. Um, Now, I'm calling this a goof, but it really wasn't standard to include rookies during their actual rookie year, so... Um, you know, they, they just chose not to deviate from the norm. Robinson was still a bit of an exception though, seeing as he was drafted in 1987, he didn't play for two years due to his naval commitments. So this allowed the card companies, the two that existed, if they chose to, they could have his rookie ready for his debut in 1989. Um, Fleer, for whatever reason, elected not to Robinson was omitted from their initial set. Um, Hoops chose to include him, and that card became iconic. Um, It's cheap now, but it's still an iconic card. That doesn't change the status of the card. Now, like I said, I, I can't really rag too much on Fleer here. You have to keep in mind that the hobby was evolving at the time. It wasn't long after this that we had the first Beckett Basketball Magazine in March of 1990. But this whole rookie situation... Uh, This was one way that competition brought about positive change, because hoops had to do something to try and get at the upper edge, and and something like this, um, it encouraged companies to try to get players into their sets earlier than they normally would. Can you imagine um, if we were just now getting Luka rookies this year in 2020, or if we didn't get any Zion cards until next season? That would seem absurd now. So like I said, it it was around this time that things were really starting to heat up. I've seen a number of people credit this time in in both Hoops and Fleer for the start of the overproduction era, um, or maybe even the junk wax era, some people will call it. Um, There's a debate now, you know, are we in the second junk wax era? I'm not really going to weigh in on that right now. Um, But when we talk about overproduction then... In the night starting in 1989, there, there's definitely some truth to that. Um, I know at one point I had so many of these that, um, maybe this is too much information. Whenever one, whenever a cat had the uh, a hairball at the house, damaged basketball cards were a great way to clean that stuff up real quick. Uh, now I just use Paul George cards, but anyway quite frankly, this overproduction of the early 90s was bound to happen because of the sudden surge of interest in cards and the players they depicted. So companies kept cranking out new sets. I've talked about 1990 Hoop Sum in episode 23. That set had the Michael Jordan number 12 jersey card and the infamous Mark Jackson Menendez Brothers card. 1990 also gave us our introduction to Skybox. Remember, this was before Skybox was a part of Fleer. Um, I think they were acquired by Marvel in 1995. I talked about that a little in episode 25. You can hear more about that there. Uh, I would say the next significant event in the hobby came in 1992 with a big rookie that you guys might have heard of named Shaquille O'Neal. And by this time, there were more manufacturers in the game. Upper Deck and Topps had joined the fray. But interestingly enough, all of these pro companies' plans were foiled for the time being when Shaq signed an exclusive trading card deal with Classic. That's right, Classic, which was considered to be more of a prospect brand. And on this card, he was featured in his LSU uniform. Now, this deal was good through the end of the 1992 calendar year, which delayed some of the plans for the big companies. To get around that, several sets featured redemption cards or trade cards that you could send in for shack cards when they were able to make them. This seemed to add to the anticipation, and it was a really good move, especially for Upper Deck, because they had that trade card where they you would send it in and they would punch it, um, because this motivated people to buy Series 1. And then eventually we got all this stuff in in uh, all of the Series 2 sets. And then the 1992 Beam Team insert was also very popular. So I would say that this really started or really propelled the chase for inserts. So then as the 90s progressed and that chase intensified, we started to see more inserts. Uh, parallels started to emerge. And in the early 90s, we even had a smattering of certified autographs that were available from either redemptions or mail-ins, promotional sets. Some were even pack-pulled. Some of the more well-known early autographs include uh, Fleer sets from Dikembe Matumbo and Dominique Wilkins, an Upper Deck Heroes card featuring Jerry West. Um, There was a dual hoops autograph of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, which you have to be very, very careful with. That card specifically, there's a lot of fakes floating around. Um, competition, though, in the industry continued to thrive, and this led to even more innovation, including the first Chromium MBA card. Now, Upper Deck, believe it or not, actually had the chance to utilize the technology for this patent first. And it came from my company called Signs and Glassworks, um, or SGW for short. And there was a mock-up for a Chromium baseball set first called UD Silver Sluggers. You know, they had the chance to do that if they wanted to. They eventually passed. They seemed more interested in holograms. Tops, however, took SGW up on the opportunity to make Chromium cards. And they rolled out their first Chromium cards in their finest set in 1993 which, by the way, is why you see that um, SGW patent on the back of a lot of those early finest sets. And that was the first basketball product then also to have refractors, which a little side note here as well, that word is trademarked by Topps. So when you see people refer to Prism cards as refractors, that's technically not true, but really it's just a technicality. The whole idea is the same, the technology is the same. Anyway, the 1993-94 Penny Hardway and Chris Weber refractors were big hits. Uh, similarly, Grant Hill and Jason Kidd were popular the next year. Um, in 95, 96 was the first year for basketball to include R on the back to denote a refractor parallel in case you weren't able to tell just from looking at it. But strangely enough, the finest rookies that year didn't have refractor versions. So we didn't get one for Kevin Garnett, which would have been huge. Now, um, I don't want to downplay Jordan cards throughout this whole era. Um, I I know uh, Chris, House of Jordans, would would be disappointed if I were to do that, right? Because they were very popular. They were very sought after. So just understand that Jordan was in all of these popular sets and played a major role in, in driving this market. But also, one thing that's pretty common throughout basketball card history is that rookies really helped to drive the market and guide production. And that was definitely the case come 1996, uh, where we had an incredible NBA draft class. You probably know the names, but I'm going to read off a small sampling real quick. You had Allen Iverson, you had Ray Allen, you had Kobe Bryant, you had Antoine Walker, um, Sharif Abdurrahim, Marcus Camby, Stephon Marbury, they were all big at the time. Jermaine O'Neal um, was hyped up by some because he was coming out of high school Steve Nash was part of that class, too, even though the excitement for him hadn't quite built up yet. Um, Truth be told, people want to rant and rave about the LeBron class, the 2003 rookie class, but there were a lot of duds in it. And it, it really just, it didn't have the same depth of this 96 class that got people and collectors specifically really excited. And the card manufacturers embraced this, and rightfully so. All right, um, I've already talked some about refractors. 1996 was a big year though for refractors because it marked the first Topps Chrome set. And of course there were the refractors that went along with it. This set, the 96 Topps Chrome was a retail only set, which adds another dimension to the chase. If you're hunting for unopened boxes of it in 2020, they're out there. They're just really tough, really tough to come by and obviously really expensive. 96-97 um, Finest then was also the first to have gold and silver refractors. Um, the Kobe and the Jordan Golds were, were big cards to pull. There's a lot more that I could say about those. I'll, maybe I'll have Jake Roy on again some at some point to talk about those. Um, I mentioned inserts earlier. Those continued to take off in the mid-90s. 96-97 sets featured a slew of high-profile die-cut inserts that are still sought after today. Some samples of those. I know I'm not gonna hit on all of them. It would be a cut above, flare Showcase, Hot Shots, Skybox, Golden Touch. Um, you had Z Force, Big Man on Court. Um, some other popular die cuts from this era included the SPX die cuts, and then um, Net Assets was another one. So there's just so much stuff from this era. I'll tell you right now, it's going to be hard to cover everything. I figure I'll probably overlook something as well. You know, there's just so there's so much time. There's only so much time. Um, another set though, from 96 that I, I really think was a big deal was the EX 2000 set. Um, and then of course the numbered credentialed parallels that came with it. Um, speaking of numbered cards, serial numbered stuff really started to take off in this time frame. A lot of that is thanks to EX and flare showcase. Um, now, the first year credentials parallels that I mentioned were numbered to 499, but the years that followed used a, a mirrored numbering system, and I've talked about that before. What I mean by that is that they had two parallels per player. That added up to a certain number, depending on the year, and then the print run was different for every player. So it was really a, a creative way to go about uh, numbering these cards and, and to create a, a chase for these players. Um I know I said I wasn't going to talk about college sets on this episode, but it is worth noting that 1996 Press Pass featured the first basketball cards with pieces of game-worn jerseys in them. I think that definitely helped pave the way for the first NBA version that Upper Deck gave us with their 1997 game jersey set. And then while they didn't do much in the basketball jersey world early on, Skybox jumped in and they had a pretty rare game-use shoe insert that they featured in other sports as well called off-in-kicks. Um, even though they didn't have the jerseys, Skybox was very active on another front, and that would be the pack-pulled autograph front. And 1996 marked the first year of the iconic autographic set. And let's face it, Clear Skybox, they really knew what they were doing here. They made them tough pulls, um, they distributed them via a number of different products throughout the year simply put it added to the chase and most of us collectors seem to enjoy a good chase so as you can see there was just a lot going on moving forward you had the 97 rookie class with Duncan McGrady and Van Horn you had the 98 class in the Vince Carter chase um, I could probably take a lot of time and talk about the 98 class I might have to do that on another separate episode um, even with Michael Jordan's retirement in January of 1999, things just kept moving. Like I said earlier, I'm not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with grading on these two episodes, but just know that it was happening. Not anywhere near as close to what it is now, but it was happening. I'm trying to move quick here. That takes us then into the 1999 draft class, which was a, a really good class as well. Um, Not a lot of superstars looking back, but uh, just a lot of really solid quality career NBA players. My personal favorites from that class are Ron Artest and Jeff Foster. Um, Please don't invest in them. I remember Steve Francis cards having a pretty good run. And that's an example of a guy that was huge that you probably wouldn't believe if you weren't there. And another great example of that in the 2000s would be Ben Gordon in 2004. And, you know, I I talk to people about Ben Gordon and, and they don't believe it. And that indicates to me that sometimes it can be difficult to get a pulse on what was hot and what wasn't. And the best thing I can recommend is to just purchase cheap copies of older Beckett magazines. I think I have a library of maybe 20 or 30, maybe even more than that here at the house. I try to pick them up when I find them for cheap. Especially if someone says, "Hey, I'm getting rid of all these old Beckets," you know, you should jump on that if you have that opportunity. Um, for the better part of, of ten or twelve years, that magazine was a huge part of the hobby. And you know, they had price guides with pricing arrows that changed every month. People were really tuned into those. I still run across a lot of collectors at shows that sell based on book value. You know, the truth of the matter is that medium, the, the printed price guide, is just too slow for the hobby now. It worked then but it's too slow now and I've got some good deals in the past year because people sold based off a of book and this hobby is just moving so fast now the books can't keep up. But there was a long time where this book was essential and their pricing mattered quite a bit. Um, these magazines also gave updates on new products so you can read those and kind of it's, it's like a little time capsule. And then one of my favorite features though was the monthly hot list. So please go grab an old issue, take a look at the hot list. Um, I'll try and post a couple on my Instagram this week, if I remember, that will give you a good idea of what guys took off in the hobby, even if it was only for a short while. All right, well now we've moved into the 2000s, and when it comes to manufacturers, the big three were pretty much established at this point. They were Tops, Upper Deck, and Fleer. And the league as a whole struggled a little bit with the retirement of Michael Jordan. You got to think he was just such a, um, a force in this league. And then now all of a sudden he's gone and there's a void, you know, and a lot of people thought that maybe Kobe would take his place as the King of the hobby. I talked about it a little on the Kobe episode. I didn't feel like he, he was really ready to take that role and kind of take over the league until I saw him in the 2000 finals. Um, As I said, though, as far as the hobby goes, rookie cards held us over for the 1999 season. But you had to wonder what was going to happen when we had a bad rookie class. Or how about a couple of bad rookie classes in a row? And that's pretty much what happened in the early 2000s. You might remember um, earlier in the episode, I said I, I took one of my few breaks from the hobby at this point. I was still watching the NBA, but it wasn't as popular. Uh, the euphoria of chasing Vince Carter, Mike Bibby, and some of those guys had worn off, and people really weren't, you know, they weren't as excited about Kenyon Martin and Desmond Mason, or a little later on Jason Richardson and Zach Randolph. I, I guess I should note though that they were very excited about Darius Miles. Um, and now he's just a filler in Panini products, but he was a huge part of the hobby for a short while. Things also picked up a little with Yao Ming and Amari Stoudemire in 2002. And speaking of Yao, I should also mention that the um, international interest in the sport and the hobby continued to grow. There was a small, continuous trickle of European players that were becoming mainstays in the league. There was also a surge of Asian interest as a result of back to back years with Chinese rookies in Wang Jiji, and then, of course, uh, Yao Ming. And eventually, Jordan came back for a third stand and we'd get wizard cards for him. I do remember trying to get my hands on something Jordan Wizards, even when I took a break, because it was just a big deal with Jordan coming back. Now, if you've listened to my patch episode or my Why I Collect episode, you probably know that I'm a memorabilia card collector over anything else. And I know some people speak negatively about the jersey card craze, but I enjoyed it. You know, Even if it did get a little overdone, it's not like inserts went away entirely, but the style and the uniqueness and the focus on them definitely changed though. So I guess a lot of insert fans blame the Jersey craze for that. And I understand why, but one thing I really liked about this era was the introduction of the SPX rookie Jersey autos. Granted, there were thousands of them and most were just plain Jersey swatches, but it was an early iteration of the rookie patch autos or the RPAs that are so popular right now. And speaking of RPAs, 2000 gave us the first upper deck ultimate collection set, which really allowed them to test the market for higher end products and showed that maybe, just maybe, something like Exquisite was feasible a little bit later down the line. Maybe when that right rookie came along. We also started to see more dedicated patch sets pop up in the early 2000s Upper Deck had a couple in the late 90s, but they were stupid rare, and they still command a healthy premium today. 2002 also marked the first dedicated Logo Man patch sets. Stadium Club had one that featured patches from the 2002 All-Star Weekend in Philadelphia. Those were unnumbered one ones and there are only, I think, 15 players in the set. Topps Jersey Edition, that was a new product that centered around jersey cards, so that kind of shows you um, how much companies had gravitated towards that jersey card uh, format. But that set featured Logo Man patches that actually had the 1-1 stamp on the back. And I do have a couple of those, I'll have to show those off too. As I mentioned in the intro, um, I came back to cards in 2003, but I still had quite a bit of exposure to this 2002 year and the 2002 products. Um, There was a lot of product out there in 2003. A lot of the older stuff. I was able to get a pretty good sampling on the retail side. A lot of it I learned about from these uh, variety boxes I used to get at Kmart and Target. Think of the... um, They have something similar now called Championship Collection. But think of one with a lot more packs and a lot more variety. Also, you know, with multiple manufacturers. Um, and not all of the dud packs in there. And, uh, you know, I used to get them at Kmart and Target. And those of you that have opened those, you might remember that they glued those packs inside the packaging with probably the strongest glue possible. I had to cut them out with a utility knife. Anyway, I love those things. I learned a lot about all the different years from them. It also helped me to catch up on some of the years I missed out on. Um, I wish I could find some more of those today. I know they're still out there somewhere, but um, at the same time, though, in 2002, it was hard to be super excited about the current crop of rookies when ESPN was televising games and hyping up a certain high schooler from Akron, Ohio. You might have heard of him before. His name is LeBron James. And that's where I'm going to end things this week. So, Maybe you were collecting at some point before 2003. You heard some of this stuff today and it resonated with you. Maybe you have fond memories from that time. Maybe there's something I glossed over that you think um, I should give more attention to. Maybe you have a favorite card that you want to show off. Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at PC. And next week, I'll pick back up where I left off. I have so much to cover from 2003 until now. And I'm pretty excited about both of these episodes. So make sure to tune in. I also encourage you to check out some of the other fine programming that Bench Clear Media has lined up for you in the next week. Right now, we've got four different shows. And the plan is to space that content out throughout the course of the week. So we always have something lined up for you, the listener. In the meantime... If you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the popping site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.